the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you this week once again from the Tramontana Mountains in Mallorca where the 20 degree temperatures and cloudless skies somewhat neutered any classics FOMO I may have been feeling yesterday particularly when I turned on my laptop and saw the conditions in Belgium. My name is Daniel Freiber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll review the weekend's action from Haralbeke and Gent-Wevelgem. Also discuss a mouth-watering Giro d'Italia antipasto that was the Volta Catalunya. And talking of multi-course meals possibly pronounced on when frustration levels peaked at Sudal Quickstep. Either side of the lunch in Varigam that Patrick Lefebvre said was the only redeeming feature of Friday or when Remco Evenepoel was flicking elbows at an implacable Primoz Roglic on Saturday and Sunday in Catalunya. I'll also tell you that we're going to do without the usual much maligned florid introductions today because it's a very somber week and a few days for the cycling podcast marking as it does a year since the death of our friend, founder and leader Richard Moore. We will indeed be talking about that in our last part today and I should also point you to our latest episode of the cycling podcast Femina which came out a few days ago and in which Rose, Orla and Lizzie also shared some very poignant reflections on Richard. So none of the usual silliness at this juncture today and instead I'll just say hello to Lionel Burney and to our friend the Belgian commentator, journalist and author Renard Schotter who should by now be a pretty familiar voice to regular listeners. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Renard. Hello, Lionel. Hello, uh, hello, Daniel. Yeah, words just can't describe the um, the miss of uh, Richard Moore in the press room and the surroundings of the race. So um, it's a privilege of being a guest today with you guys uh, on a day. It's a, it's a year ago, so um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still... I'm still very impressed and, and uh, we will never, ever, ever, ever forget Richard and his sense of humour in, in all those races and uh, the fine colleague he is still in our minds. Yes, Chats, well, again, very well, I mean, for us, certainly, Lionel, it will be, uh, it's a race which will be inextricably linked to the, the memory of Richard. Um, and as I say, we'll talk about we'll talk about that in our last part today. And Renard, this, is, of course, is, well, this is the... Must be the most intense week of the season for you, isn't it? It's a crazy week, um, and and I'm I'm still kind of fresh off of that motorbike in Gentwevelgem, and I'm not at all recovered. Um, it, it for me personally, it, it was probably the the worst race I ever did, even worse than that Gentwevelgem 2015. I don't know why, probably because it rained all day, and every inch of energy was literally drained out of my body, and I could barely walk after stepping off my motorbike towards the uh, the technical zone. And uh, yeah, I, I need a couple of days and okay, I was on a motorbike, so you can only wonder what it is like for, for the riders in, in a race like yesterday. Explain the physical challenge or the measures, the precautions you have to take in conditions like that. I mean, how how difficult and grueling is it? The problem is if, if cold is combined with wet conditions, then um, it, it's tricky because you can easily become sick. So it's all about layers. You start with uh, one layer, you put another layer on top and another and another and another till in the end you probably have six, sometimes seven layers to protect yourself from uh, 
the wetness and the coldness. It's, it's happened to me on, on uh, at Wednesday's race in Brugge de Panne. I was thinking like, ooh, I can't continue like this. So I, I said to the, um, my motor driver, stop. And I, I had to get on extra gear. And it turned out to be a, a savior to, to do the rest of the race in, in decent conditions. Yeah, Because the, the I've got nothing against wind, but if it's combined with rain all day long, then it's really... And it's 260 kilometers as yes, well. Yes, that's it. And that created... Uh, an immense suffer fest in yesterday's Kent Wevelgem, and it, it probably also explained the outcome with with uh, what we saw in the end. Yeah, kind of. I, feel, I can just see from your facial expression, Renard, I'm I'm triggering some kind of P- PTSD just by asking you to talk about it. So we should probably move on to the um, to the news roundup. Um, at the time of recording last week, we'd seen a couple of stages at the Settimana Copia Bartali. That race finished at the weekend with a victory for Sudal Quickstep. Hallelujah. Um, their rider, Mauro Schmidt, holding on to take overall victory by 14 seconds from EF Education first. James Shaw, Sean, whom you listeners got to know pretty well during the Vuelta last year. There's also a second stage win of the week for Sudal Quickstep's Remy Cavagna in the time trial on the final day. Prior to that, EF's 22-year-old Irishman and Dan Martin sound alike. Yes, uh, he does have a bit of a Brummie accent like Dan Martin. Um, ben Healy had won stage three in Forli, and Healy demonstrated his outstanding form again on Sunday by winning the GP Larciano. Sunday was indeed a fine day for Irish riders, despite Sam Bennett's DNF at Ghent Wevelgem. For the national champion, Rory Townsend won La Rue Tourangelle, in a bunch sprint in France. Another stage race that finished at the weekend, and as with Ghent Wevelgem and, and E3, we'll be talking about this more later, so I'll just mention the result now. It was the Volta a Catalunya, and it was won by Primoz Roglic. Overall, Remco Evenepoel winning the last stage. Uh, Roglic's overall margin of victory was just six seconds. As you all know, it's been a very intense week of semi-classic pseudo-monument or tippy-tappy wannabe classic racing in Belgium. Some of pundits view, not mine. Um, going in chronological order, we'll start with Depana last Wednesday, the one day of Depana. And I'll tell you that Jasper Philipson won the men's race and Pfeiffer Georgie the women's. Georgie taking that after a particularly impressive solo move. On Friday, it was E3, E3 Halbrecker, no women's race um, there, but mercifully, as of a couple of years ago, there's been no, there have been no deeply inappropriate promo posters either. The race turned out to be an extremely memorable one with Mathieu van der Poel, Wout van Aert and Tadej Pogacar going clear with 60 kilometers to go and going on to contest a sprint won eventually by van Aert. It was van Aert's second consecutive E3 win. Lionel, during the cyclocross season, we were calling Van Aert, Van der Poel and Pidcock cyclocross BGs. So what does that make these three? Pog, Van Aert and Van der Poel. The cobblestone ZZ Top, oh, Atomic Kassayan, I mean, uh, Depeche Road. Well, the, th- the, the, the three degrees, I don't know, the three amigos, the three stooges, Charlie's Angels, maybe. I don't know. Um, I think it's kind of George Best, Dennis Law and oh, Bobby Charlton, isn't good. it? The kind of... Uh, there we go. The... Or Ross Chandler, Ross Chandler and there Joey. There we go. Who's I who? like that. I like that. <laughs> um, who's who? Oh, I don't know. Uh, whoever finishes third is Joey, I guess. We'll talk a lot more about the men's Gent Wevelgem later in the pod, as I've already said. So for now, I'll just 
cover the result of the women's race. It was won with a rather spectacular solo raid. And as it turned out, enormous two-minute, 42-second margin by Marlon Reusser of SD Works. That was Reusser's first individual victory since the European TT Championships last summer. Reusser said after as well, Renard, she sounded a bit like you afterwards. She said it was the coldest race of her life and at certain points she feared for her life. I mean, how cold were the riders looking yesterday? And did you hear any sort of um, moans of, of anguish and utter abject desperation from your position on the, on the motorbike? Uh, you could see the, the worn out faces after only like 45 minutes of racing. And um, after that small amount of, of racing, they already looked like they had like a six hour race behind them. And then it all uh, even has to start. So uh, my colleague on TV said they look like seasonal workers. And um, if seasonal workers looked like that in, in back in the 19th century, I can agree on that because uh, mine workers, uh, that was the, the word that also crossed my mind. And the, the problem for the, the riders uh, is, of course, to, to get that body warmth on level. And um, so there's a big struggle going on long before the final has begun with, with uh, going back to the cars and again getting extra gear, delivering wet gear, getting dry gear in return, trying to keep that dry gear uh, dry, which is impossible. So that, that that itself is a race after the race and um, makes it quite complicated. And, and so the nerves and the stress levels in a, a wet race like, like yesterday and, and uh, the days before, Sometimes I'm I'm envious about them being on the bikes and enjoying <laughs> the race and, and everything else, but those are not days to be envious about them at all. Not at all, not at all, because then you, you sometimes you feel pity. I mean, I saw a report on Yellow Wall Ice. Um, he had to abandon, uh, short of breath. He was kept in hospital for a, a, a night for observation. So it might have looked boring at some point yesterday mm -hmm. with, with Van Aert and Laporte in the front, but I, I'm quite sure that for... Everybody involved in every race the, the last couple of days, it never felt ever for one second boring. How is the forecast looking for the weekend? Do we know? Cold, cold again, I thought, um, but could be dry for Sunday's race. I, I might check it again, but um, it looks like it might be a chilly day, but um, not wet so that's really a very important one in a race like the tour of flanders um, and everything of course will depend on the, on the strength of the wind because however wet it, it gets um in the end to determine uh, race um, developments the wind is more important factor than than the rain uh, in my opinion Chaps, some sad news to finish with in the news roundup today. Uh, Cycling's mourning the death of the legendary Italian frame builder, Ugo De Rosa. Uh, he was 89, born and raised in Milan. De Rosa sold his first bike in 1953 at age 20 and a couple of decades later became Eddie Merckx's preferred frame builder for the final years of the Cannibal's career. De Rosa built bikes which would win Tours de France, Giri d'Italia, multiple spring classics, notably with Gavis in mid-90s. And also rainbow jerseys. Some of you may remember the company's unmistakable heart-shaped logo adorning the Merak bike upon which Romans of Einstein's one in Plouay in 2000. 
Up until the end of last year, DeRozan was also supplying bikes to Cofidis. This year, uh, Bingo and Green Project Bardiani are on DeRozan bikes, and they'll be carrying forward what will now be Ugo DeRozan's cherished legacy. Chaps, I was just reading about uh, DeRozan this morning, and you know we all sort of know it's common knowledge in the industry that particularly up until a couple of decades ago, um, you would get these artisan Italian frame milkers. Um, frame builders making bikes for a lot of riders which would these bikes would then be painted up with the logos of other manufacturers in line with whatever agreements their teams had but Deroza was apparently making bikes for 80 percent of the Giro Peloton in the 1970s I didn't quite realize the extent of his domination and he was I mean Colnago is Ernesto Colnago is often talked about as the Italian frame builder par excellence, but there was a sort of stole Eddie Merckx from Colnago in the 70s. Merckx um, decided that he wanted to switch allegiance from Colnago to De Rosa. And they're beautiful bikes, aren't they? Have always been, um, of all of the, I mean, there the will be people who who would cover a Pinarello more than the Colnago, more more than the Villa or a De Rosa. But to me, De Rosas have always had a, uh, an extra sort of cachet, um, partly due to the aesthetics of the bikes. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors, of course, to find out all about their system of continuous glucose monitoring and how it can help you. Go to supersapiens.com. And a big thank you to Super Sapiens because their support has enabled us to sort of spread our wings a bit in various ways. This weekend coming, Arrivé, Daniel, will be discussing the Men's Tour of Flanders. And there'll also, for the first time, be a separate episode for the Women's Tour of Flanders. Rose and Lizzie will be discussing how the women's race turns out. And those episodes will both be online on Sunday evening. And they will be sponsored, like all of our output, by Super Sapiens, so thank you to them. I can say uh, I won a big classic now. I did two times second last year, and uh, yeah, it was uh, one of my big goals to, to win a big classic, and I'm very happy and proud of that. I'm very proud of, of the team, also what we did, and uh, I just can say uh, a big thanks to the world. Did you consider to just sprint, uh, to do a sprint between you and about in the end? Yeah, if we do a sprint, uh, <laughs> I didn't win for sure. I was uh, totally full the last UK. Well, chaps, that was Christophe Laporte reflecting on the Jumbo Visma secret Santa at the weekend. And Laporte himself receiving Gent Wevelgem, uh, Remco Avenepoel getting a uh, stage of the Volta Catalunya from Primoz Roglic, but not the overall. But what a f- what a uh, so I would say surprising turn of events that was that Wout van Aert, Belgian national treasure Wout van Aert, gifted a Frenchman um, Christophe Laporte. Gent Wevelgem yesterday, and with that, the front page of L'Equipe. Maybe that was the maybe that was his main motivation. Um, he knew that Jumbo Visma would certainly not have got 
page one of L'Equipe, um, had he won himself. But yes, Renart, what did you make of that decision yesterday? I think I was as surprised as everybody, um, but um, it didn't come 100% unexpected because already during their um, crusades towards Wevelgem, I, I was thinking, hmm, it looks like um, a Van Aert victory in the making, but um, I'm just not 100% sure. So I I went to the um, Jumbo, Jumbo Visma car twice in order to, to snatch out a little bit more info, but um, the lips stayed sealed. And then uh, in the end, even while he was playing with it, uh, like it looked like he was going to win. And then uh, Laporte came over him and then there was like a, yeah, a little game in the end. But clearly it was a setup and they knew what was going to happen. And um, I'm quite sure some people will call it a blasphemy, like you, you never give away a classic and lots of comments has been made about it. Um, of course, Eddie Merckx has been uh, asked about it. And the, What's Merckx said? Uh, the obvious answer is I would not have done it. <laughs> so, uh, and there was a situation actually where he, where he could have done it back in the days. There was this... Um, Liège, Bastion Liège, where he was in, in the front with his teammate. And um, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I actually even recall Merckx popping the question towards the teammate and the teammate like, uh, huh? Uh, I think there was something like that towards it. But um, so there was not a question, not, a, not, not even a millimeter of chance that Merckx would have uh, gifted this another burn or dangerous word, gifted the victory in that Liege to, to his teammate back in the days. Um, I do recall uh, another example of, of um, Gent Wevelgem in 1985 vividly as a TV spectator. I was, um, I was young, but I was glued to the screen. And, and then um, there was this Gent Wevelgem a couple of days after um, a legendary win of Erik van der Aden in the Tour of Flanders in very, very um, yeah, quite similar conditions as the last days with lots of wind and lots of rain, even more than than, than recently. And uh, Van der Aden won that Tour of Flanders with, with uh, lots of uh, panache and, and class, uh, 85. Um, and then three days after or four days after, there was Kent Wevelgem and he tried to give away the victory to Phil Anderson, the Australian. And there was a sprint, so it was kind of difficult to give away that victory. Mm. And, and um Clearly, uh, Van der Aden, he was breaking at the end, but he, he was breaking too late. So he stayed the winner and it was like, uh, I tried to let you win. And then there was a lot of uh, discussion afterwards. And I think uh, looking back on that episode, Eric Van der Aden was really pleased that, that somehow the, the gift uh, was a failure because it, it's, it stays his only Gent Wevelgem win. This situation, of course, is different. Van Aert already has one Kent Wevelgem in the pocket. So uh, it illustrates the kind of person what Van Aert is. I had the chance of seeing his entourage after the race. And mm. I saw his manager, uh, Jeff van den Bos, and, and he said to me, like, look, this illustrates the kind of person Wout is. Not a lot of people or would do this. Or nobody would do this. It's It's... Not logic. Uh, maybe it has to do with with uh, the whole press thing uh, in the run up towards a couple of races. Like like he has to win the Tour of Flanders. He has to win Paris Roubaix. And you know the answer of Wout van Aert after Friday's E3. He turned to the camera and said in Flemish, "Ik moet just niks. I don't have to do um, 
yeah, nothing is a must for me, basically translated. So, so he's doing, he's writing his own history books, and I'm quite sure you mentioned it front page Lekip. Um, in a way, this uh, after we have to say it, a boring finale was a historic Gent Wevelgem again. I mean, there is a more recent precedent, though, isn't there? This this time last year, Van Aert and Laporte were together at the end of the E3 Saxa Bank, and they came to the line together, and a very similar finish, arm in arm. Does that explain it? That might well, explain it. Yeah. I mean, Van Aert was in the Belgian champion's jersey that day as well, so even hard. I mean, they would, wouldn't have given that one away, I guess, I suppose, repaying the favour. Lots of people are talking about how this kind of, you know, ensures Laporte's, uh, you know, loyalty for the coming races. But, I mean, that's his job anyway. I don't think it's about that. I think it probably is a bit of a thank you for uh, the way that they, you know, shared it out last year at E3. Remember, they finished a minute and a half clear of uh, Stefan Kung, I think, was on the podium. Uh, uh, the, the group was a minute and a half back. This time they had more time to play with. Um, I mean, a few weeks ago we talked, you know, we were in raptures about how the SD Works riders, Demi Vollering and Lotta Kopecky, didn't have this all sorted out before they came into the finish at Strada Bianca. And we said what a fantastic finish to the race it was, the drama and the, you know, the, the soap opera of it and the potential conflict within the team, between teammates. There's none of that drama here. That You know, that almost almost too smooth, too professional. You know, Jumbo Visma are strolling around the cobbled classics like it's a game of supermarket sweep. They're not bothering with the small items. They're going straight for the flat screen TVs and, the, you know, the high ticket items. They, well, they've, they've cleaned up so far. I mean, but for Jasper Philipson, they would have had all of the cobbled Flanders races so far, wouldn't they? Because uh, Olaf Coy was second on Wednesday in uh, Brugge de Panna. I mean, it's ominous for everybody else. No one else seems to really have an answer. And I suppose when they're away together, it kind of is for them to decide how to sort it out amongst themselves. I just think as a spectator watching on TV, people do feel a little bit shortchanged, especially as it's the second time it's happened in in a year, you know, between the same two riders. I thought it was pretty remarkable, though, because... You know, there's always an element of, of quid pro quo in these uh, in these episodes when something like this happens. However, Laporte has been thanked by Wout van Aert and thanked by the team on numerous occasions in the sense that, for example, Paris-Nice last year, that okay, that was early in his Jumbo-Visma career, but they, they effectively gifted him stage one and the yellow jersey. They gifted him, I would suggest, the opportunity, and he certainly grasped it at the Tour de France um, when he took his stage in the last week on a stage which could also have suited um, Van Aert and when he could easily have had other things that he needed to do for the team. So it's not as though, you know, this is a rider who slaved away thanklessly for 10 years and then finally he's sort of getting his day in the sun. You know, it's a Belgian race uh, in front of Wout Van Aert's home crowd, you know, at the end of a period when he has, as Renard said, he's come under, you know, he, he there is some scrutiny of Wout Van Aert's record in big races. Okay, he's won Gent Wevelgem before, but there is this sort of question mark over whether he's going to be able to win a monument. So I think he would certainly have been entitled to to take this one. And also, you know, you look at the circumstances of the race, people will point to the fact that he was clearly the strongest rider on the second time at the Kemmelberg. Um, you know, he was, the, it was the second time, wasn't it, when they both went away. Um, he was, he looked like the strongest there. And then on the final time at the Kemmelberg, he was actually dropping Laporte and had to wait for him. That said, Laporte had already been off 
off the front down the road and he played a key role in sort of um, drawing the race out so um, I think it was it was a very magnanimous gesture I'd just be curious to know how much of the initiative came from Van Aert himself it sounds Renard from what you're saying as though it all yeah, came from him I think 100 percent um because when I was asking uh, DS uh, Martin Wijnands, his, his former teammate also, in the car, uh, it was clearly, um, yeah, the decision is all Wouts. And um, I think that that's the way it works with the really big ones. I mean, um, back in the days, if uh, Eddie Merckx had to decide about the outcome of a race, it was Merckx's decision, not the, 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 the leaders in the team cars. So uh, it, it also underlines the status, um, the status uh, Wout van Aert has within the team. He's uh, he's he's determining stuff. And um, I think um, Wout is a writer that thinks in, uh, in terms of... Um, lists as it goes for his uh, his honors list and so he already he already won Gent Wevelheim then I think that's a very important factor in his decision yesterday and he thinks or uh, rules that that it won't make a difference for the outcome or the perception of his career if he's win one one or two Gent Wevelgans um Tom Bonham of course is a three-time winner um his voice has been heard about heard about the uh, the, the facts and uh, he says He's a, a bit playing warm and cold. He understands it. He's, he also helped mm. the teammates to win races, but never in a situation like that. He says you need teammates to um, to battle for victory. This looked very well for the team's marketing, but I'm not sure if I would have done it. Jumbo is scoring, but Gent Wevelgem stays Gent Wevelgem. It's a nice race on your uh, on your palmares. It's more than a ride in, in Paris Nice. Uh, referring to the the Paris Nice uh, stage last year, but then Bonin says, mm, "Do you want to win like that?" I would have sprinted for it, and uh, I, of course, he gets it. But a sprint maybe would have looked awkward, like we've seen at Strade Bianca with the women's race. Uh, but he says, mm. "And I yeah. mentioned." I mentioned to you this morning, didn't I, Renard? There was one occasion which I actually, I had to go back and check exactly what happened with Mappe, uh, Liege-Bastogne-Liege in 2002. Um, Stefano Garzelli and Paolo Bettini were off the front on their own and they actually sprinted. They sort of, you know, it might have looked like a bit mm. of a half-hearted sprint, but that still gave them the opportunity. They both sort of yeah. sat up 20 metres from the line, having established that Bettini had won the sprint and they still, you know, posed for the nice picture, which was then hung up or, you know, or made into a poster at court. Headquarters. Yeah, it, it is kind of unique in, in, a, in a race of that level to see a big rider like Wout van Aert um, uh, gift away the victory or gi of giving the uh, the red carpet to, uh, to a teammate. And, and Bonin is concluding with, with uh, the most uh, interesting remark, Wout will regret it. So only the future will tell. Uh, he says, to conclude the whole Bonin uh, look on it, riders come and go. Laporte will probably be a key figure in Flanders and Roubaix, which I subscribe fully. But having uh, Mathieu van der Poel into the game and Pogacar into next Sunday's Tour of Flanders, then a week later, van der Poel again on, on the Roubaix road, it's not a guarantee, uh, says Bonin. Imagine crashing Sunday after five kilometers, then you will regret it a lot, he says. But I think um, so many people, so many opinions about it. And I think we saw another remarkable um, page of cycling history that will stay in my mind. And it will be, a, even even with the, the outcome of, of yesterday's race, it will remain 
one for the history books, quite sure. Renard, I'm only interested in the view of one illustrious former Belgian classics great, and that's Roger de Vlamic. What's he saying? Is he saying that Welch should be banished to the Netherlands and or taken straight to the Hague and put on trial for war crimes? What's he saying? I can imagine Roger thinking that, quite sure. I mean, um, at the other hand, I'm trying to think about one race he might have given away. No, Roger got tricked by, by Francesco Moser in a couple of uh, Roubaix. Uh, edition, so he he never gave away a, a race with full heart. So, but maybe he explained afterwards. I, I let Francesco win, eh? of course. Eh? Francesco, he was entitled to win this race, but I'm quite sure it never never happened with his uh, with his full heart. Yeah. This is a consequence of the concentration of talent in Jumbo Visma, isn't it? I mean, they have put together over a few seasons quite a formidable. Um, classics lineup. I mean, we talked about it when Christophe Laporte left Cofidis to join Jumbo Visma. What a smart signing that was because he was one of those poor souls, you know, riding almost as a freelancer all on his own, uh, you know, picking up crumbs from the big classics teams. Now he's in a big classics team. He's there able to kind of help wield the big stick with, with Van Aert. And uh, as you say, Daniel, you know, he he was instrumental in, in setting things up because uh, he was up the road initially. Um, and again, Jumbo Visma, you know, they did have numbers, didn't they? Van Hooydonk was also very prominent in Gent Wevelgem. Um, I mean, the strength in depth they have, uh, it's not necessarily a surprise that, that Van Aert and Laporte got together, got away together. I mean, it was just the sort of inattention, inaction when they went the final time on the, the Kemmelberg, you know, the, as they came into the left-hand corner, they both accelerated. And everybody else just kind of let them go. And there was a kind of moment where Caleb Ewan was looking really good. I think it was Ben Turner, Mads Pedersen were at the front at that point, but there was no real response. And I, I just wonder, uh, you know, the, the response once sort of 200, 300 metres have gone by and the gap has opened up a little bit, it's already too late. You know, we saw Pascal Ackerman and Matteo Trenti and teammates for UAE, Team Emirates, both there but kind of neither really working, they weren't really working together to sort of counter or do do anything. You have to take your hat off to Jumbo Visma. You know, they had a plan. Just watching what they did, it was obvious that that was premeditated. And uh, they knew once they were away and they had that gap. Um, well, the gap went up fairly dramatically, didn't it? And once it was a minute, minute and a half, and the chase behind was non-existent, and then before you know it it's too late and it, we see this time and time again in in the races and and yet it's it's the mistake that everybody it's like putting your foot in the same puddle twice i mean um i mean you, know, you can no, say nobody that seems to, nobody seems well i mean i, it, I have uh, said it maybe we'll talk about that we'll talk about this a little bit in relation to catalonia as well it struck me it struck me watching a lot of races this year that there are these clear sort of tiers developing both in stage racing and one day racing and you know, we'll we'll move on to E3 in a second. But, you know, it, it does seem to me that there is a clear discrepancy, a clear gulf between, you know, the Van Arts, the Van der Poels, and as we saw in E3, the Pogacar. In the same way that in Catalonia, for example, it looked as though... Remco and Roglic were in a different category to the Landers, the Jai Hindleys, the guys who we think of as Grand Tour contenders. But the this sort of gulf is opening up partly due to the teams themselves, um, whatever work that they're doing behind the scenes, the recruitment that they've done as well. 
But it's difficult to imagine how some of these other teams are going to compete, particularly when it gets to Sunday and Tour of Flanders with um, with Jumbo Visma and the multitude of options they've got. I don't know how Van Bala is. I don't know if we've got any reports on Van Bala and his health and whether he's going to be all right for Sunday. No, he should be, but I'm, I'm yeah. We'll, we'll always have to wait and see because with these days communication wouldn't be the first surprise they pull out of, of a big hat. Uh, so um, mm-hmm. let's just cross fingers that Van Bala is, is in the game for him personally because uh, he might also win it. Eh? Uh, I think that is maybe the key. Jumbo Visma is is needing to um, to um, to make the win a certainty if they want to beat Van der Poel and Pogacar in the Tour of Flanders. It is a different ball game. There are more height meters. But then it could be very important for Wout van Aert to have guys like Laporte and Van Barle at his side to make the difference in the end in a tactical play. Um, so I think um, he has that surplus. I wouldn't underestimate the strength of um, uh, Mathieu's and Tadej's teams. Not, not at all, because they also have riders. But I think everybody will agree that Jumbo Visma at this moment has the best classics team uh, that is riding around. Um, referring to what Lionel was saying, there was there's one element um, in the whole Laporte uh, van Aert history at Gent-Wevelgem that I would like to return to. There's apparently a, a deep friendship between those two guys in the meantime, even though they've only been teammates for like one season and a little bit. So I also think, let's not forget about that. There are high um, class athletes, but they're also human. I mean, friendship does play a role in human relationships and even at, at high uh, level sports situations. And I think there's also another element. I I think uh, having given, if we use the word again, Laporte is in an impossible situation now for the next Roubaix. He's French. If he's with about in the finale, in the final of the next Paris-Roubaix, he has a Frenchman, even if he has a terrific day, he has to gift between, between uh, you know, uh, he has to do everything to let Van Aert win Paris-Roubaix. And I think in the end, that's probably the, the main reasoning behind um, the generosity of Wout van Aert. Um, it, might, it might give him Paris-Roubaix a race that will change perception of his honours list. Just on the friendship and the sort of sentimental aspects of it, Renard, as well, I understand that Christophe Laporte had his second child a couple of months ago. I think it was Christmas Eve. And by all accounts, he suffered quite a lot in January and February. The team spent, or that part of the team spent a long period in Tenerife on the Teide volcano. And by all accounts, he was missing home a lot. And this was an open secret in the team. And that might also be something that has prompted Wout van Aert to, you know, to feel that he wanted to show his appreciation. I mean, just on a practical level as well, we should also say that this, um, I wouldn't say it creates headaches, but most riders in their contract will have stipulated bonuses for, for example, Gent Vavelgen. Gent Vavelgen might be worth 100,000 euros, 200,000 euros in bonuses to um, Van Aert or Laporte. So how that is then sorted out between them is also a bit of a, a bit of a question. Lionel? Wow. I mean, poor. no idea. I mean, 
It's a problem you're never like. You're, 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 you're like. I mean, uh, well, well, we'll talk about the cycling podcast bonus structure off <laughs> mic, Daniel. Just before we move on from Game Wave again, uh, that was only the fourth French victory, I think, after Onkatil, Bernardino, Philippe Gaumont. Um, so a uh, little bit of history there. And we should also mention that the women's race as well, Marlon Rusa of SD Works, she did a Jumbo Visma on her own. And I think that kind of reinforces this um, theme of commitment versus hesitation. We saw it in the women's race as well. You know, lots of riders behind who would want to try and chase or want to have been on terms in the first place. But once that move's missed, there's no, you know, the, the, the getting people to collaborate and really commit to a chase against a rider or riders who are totally committed. I mean, you know, Laporte and Van Aert were, you know, they had no option but to absolutely go. Everybody behind is thinking about the possible permutations of what if when this comes back. And I think uh, we, we saw the same in, in the women's race. I mean, Royce also, she had enough time in hand to go off course briefly with about five kilometres to go and uh, got back on course and won. But uh, another impressive day for SD Works. And we will just talk briefly in this part about E3 as well, and we'll probably revisit it in part three when we when we look ahead to Flanders at the weekend. And um, Renat, what were you doing on Friday? Were you on the motorbike again on Friday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done three in a row, and um, I was on the motorbike and was thinking back of that one question you popped to me for the uh, the um, the prognosis or how do you call it the uh, ludicrous of ridiculous. Uh, uh, Prono uh, episode you had uh, forecast for the season, and I said it's going to rain. Ridiculous! You can, in leave, Belgium. You, you can leave a review on iTunes if you want, Renard. But <laughs> if you want to be invited back, yes, go on. <laughs> I said I predicted it was going to rain every day in Belgium, and sadly my predictions ah, yes. are coming out. So I, I wish I hadn't predicted that because now I'm, I'm kind of in in the phase of hoping that it's going to be a dry race because I've seen enough rain for the last couple of days. Like, uh, yeah, I've had enough of, of double those, all those wet conditions. <laughs> and just how much when you're on the motorbike, were you sort of glorying in or appreciating the fact that we were witnessing something very special in the sense that, you know, we always talk about these Galacticos of um, the, the world tour, the top tier of professional cycling nowadays yeah. and we had them congregated the three of them at the front riding into the finish together i i suppose pogacar on paper um he well he was the underdog in in that trio and so it proved van art winning but um it's it was a it was a race it's a memory that will treasure and it sort of is emblematic of this incredible era that we're that we're seeing, that we're living through, both in stage racing and in one day racing in professional cycling. Yeah, that's true. I've I've said it a couple of times before, um, especially from a Belgian point of view, that we are um, experiencing a revival of the 70s. And, and in, in the past, I was referring to the fact that, that the Belgian golden era was coming back, but it's also coming back in, in an international sense because uh, if you see a grand tour rider like Pogacar doing the stuff he does in one day races I mean he is the Eddie Merckx of this era and I'm, I'm, I'm sure lots of people won't like the comparison but but he's doing every race at full gas and he's aiming at winning San Remo he's aiming at winning races like E3 uh, Flanders I mean um, I'm already looking forward to the day he's gonna try Roubaix because in a sense I feel like he's going to do that one day 
even just for fun or to have a, a shot at it. So, and I think Pogacar is paying so much tribute to to uh, this glorious sport of cycling that that he puts it to another level and he's <clears throat> giving all that uh, all of the things that history has given in the past to the sport. He's returning that. And that makes us so privileged as cycling journals these days to watch what is happening because in, in like seven or eight years, we, we will probably look back in awe and say, that really happened? It is happening right now. He's got a problem against Van Aert and Van Der Poel, though, hasn't he, consistently? I mean, we've said the three degrees, the three amigos. I mean, the three bears. The good, Pogacar, the bad and the ugly, Lionel. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but the three bears, Tadej Pogacar is unfortunately baby bear in terms of the, the, the kind of the, that just final percent of power needed for those finishes. It was interesting, wasn't it? He forced the pace on the Paterberg and on the Alde Quadamont. Had Van Aert looking a little bit in difficulty on the Alde Quadamont, which was interesting. Um, but he just hasn't worked out yet where he can press home the advantages that he may have over the other two. The climbs are neither... You know, the, the Quadamont's not steep enough, perhaps, and the Paterberg's not long enough. Needs a a climb that sort of combines the two of those just to, just to put Van Der Poel and Van Aert into the red enough that, that, that maybe they can't recover or it takes a bit of the, the sting out of their sprints because uh, if these three are, are going to go head to head like that it's difficult to see a way of Pogacar winning you, against them you two are much more sort of well certainly Renard Belgian cycling cognoscenti than I am and you know the routes much better than I do um, E3 has it always been has the running to E3 how long has how long have we had this running because the last 30, 40 kilometers are pretty uneventful, aren't they? Um, in terms of bergs, in terms of climbs. Yeah, it's it's um, been in this form for yeah, yeah, it has been a while. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just sort of thinking about the way professional cycling has gone in the last three or four years. And, you know, you think of the way stage races and the Tour de France is going with, with, with race directors trying to spice up the finales more and more. I just wonder whether in the next two, three, four years we might see a tweak which makes, whether it's E3 or even Tour of Flanders, I, I think the Tour of Flanders is pretty much set in stone, literally and figuratively now, the the route for the next few years. But we might see some tweaks that are a bit more congenial to Tadej Pogacar, no? Mm, I, I don't know what Renard thinks, but I mean, the the, the E3 has been known as the, the, the little Tour of Flanders, hasn't it? It's basically a, a condensed... Tour of Flanders, it's shorter, but it contains pretty much uh, the same sort of menu of cobbles and climbs. I mean, the one criticism of the old Tour of Flanders route, which I happened to like, was that everybody waited for the Moor and the Bosberg. And there was this kind of like, yes, there was a flurry in the middle. That kind of important middle phase of the race was was good to watch, but nothing really, really caught fire. Whereas on Friday, you know, 80 kilometers, 80 kilometers to go, we see Van der Poel and Van Aert and Pogacar making moves and and that really was where the race kicked off yes there is a bit of a lull as they were riding through and off a, a sort of three up time trial to the finish but there it was at least a suspense of how are they going to sort this out you know that who who is going to win we didn't have that in Gent Wevergem on on Sunday but certainly from sort of 80 kilometers to go to uh the Quadamont it was you know it was gripping watching because uh, so much was going on. Matteo Jorgensen, great ride by him. You know, Movistar, fourth and fifth. They they probably look at that as disappointment in a Grand Tour. But on uh, a race like Friday, an excellent result for them. 
Um, we saw Casper Askren have a little go. You know, we'll talk about Sudar Quickstep and them falling short, but they, they were kind of there. But it was all about Soren Crow Anderson and Nathan Van Hooydonk and Mohoric, who went clear just before the Eichenberg. And, and that really was the, the leaping off point. Uh, we talked about Dylan Van Bala, who crashed uh, just as I came into the that that famous section of cobbles that goes over the railway line, and that then Van der Poel's acceleration, you know, no hesitation from Van Aert or from um, from Pogacar, and to get across to that leading trio, and then it kind of broke apart and came back together again and broke apart again, and I mean the three of them were in majestic uh, full flight. It was uh, yeah, we, people said you know we'll, we will look back on this as. Uh, um, almost the sort of the, the, the summit, the peak of, a, of an era in the classics to see three riders, you know, Pogacar doesn't fit the same mould as Van Aert and Van der Poel, but the one thing they all have in common is they, they race. They properly race against each other. And uh, that is what is is making it, um, you know, so exciting to watch. So a funny tweet at the weekend, someone said they love the way this new generation races like they're a bunch of crackheads, <laughs> which... which <Wow. laughs> I mean, um, yeah, maybe, maybe uh, I'd choose. A, I mean, they, they they are racing with a kind of a sense that what they're trying to do is possible. I mean, you, you know, we, we've lamented in the past, Daniel, you know, the, the kind of waiting, waiting, everybody being cautious in these races. Come on, the, the opportunity is there for you. The roads are offering, you know, um, those opportunities and, and riders would just sit tight um, I mean, even Jean Marie LeBlanc seen, could even Jean Marie LeBlanc could design a, an exciting race these days. <laughs> That's how good it is. <laughs> but but I think it's the willingness to race, isn't it? I mean, we have seen it in the past. I'm not saying that we've we've lived through a kind of a, an era of kind of beige wallpaper because we haven't. You know, Philippe Gilbert, Peter Sagan. You know, we have seen fantastic exploits. But seeing these exploits between you know riders who are very well matched and you know the the rest are not taking it lying down you know we've seen a little from movistar there that suggests that maybe not this year but in coming years jorgensen is going to be a real threat you know stefan kuhn keeps trying mate mohoric keeps trying um there are more things just behind those kind of top riders the, the big question is you know how does anyone else kind of latch onto that train and and then it, exploit the the rivalry between them because i think that's probably the only opportunity that some of the other riders have got the thing is um yeah yeah i i agree with lionel but um the um the thing about mathieu and what is that they they just race like they did in cyclocross races when they were the junior when they were a junior i mean if they see an opportunity they snatch it and um on paper if you attack in the, the second of three Camelberg ascents, you would think hmm, that's not the best tactics to do. But if you look at the result, yeah, um, Wout saw an opportunity, so he decided to go before the ultimate um, climb of, of the Camelberg and, and the race was, was decided. It's amazing and it um, they don't have a rule book for tactics no, anymore. A, and that's what contagious. makes it... Yeah. It's been yeah. contagious, hasn't it? I think this this approach has leaked into the seeped through the rest of the peloton. I mean, let's sort of not forget that this is a uh, this is the social media generation with tiny attention spans, and mm. they can't sit still for more than twenty <laughs> seconds. And you see that in the way yeah. they race. <laughs> Do we like that that, that, okay. that attention span? <laughs> I'm having difficulties with it. I mean, my attention span. Um, is uh yeah whatever uh, 
Well, I, I think I, I'm not sure uh, if, if they think about that, but it is a, a fact that um, there's more similarities uh, between Mathieu and Wout than, than people would expect. I mean, because of their positions, I've said it in the past, they can't be friends. But I think if you look at both characters, there's there's a lot of similarities between them. They have even mutual interests. They could be best friends, but they are not because of the conditions. And I guess after their careers, they might turn out to be best friends, as we've seen with a lot of champions in the past. So only future will tell. But um, that being said, and I think um, again, these are, um, yeah, incredible times. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Wout will show Van der Poel his new bathroom after winning some vouchers for some <laughs> bathroom equipment on the Tugenberg. I yeah. don't know. Just the very last one on, on, uh, on Friday. I mean, we should just mention, uh, it did appear that Wout Van Aert was getting his chain greased from the team car at one point. And uh, that is against the UCI rules, rule 2.3.030. I have asked the UCI uh, for a comment about that because, well, we saw with the rule about the continuous glucose monitor that Christian Faulkner was wearing in Strada Bianca a few weeks ago, the rules are the rules. And the commissaires apparently, Renard, decided that no advantage was gained. Um, is that the end of the matter, do you think? Or, I mean, it presumably is, but... Under what circumstances would they decide that an advantage had been gained by someone having their chain greased? Yeah, but the point is, the point is that Christian Faulkner gained no advantage, but the, the, it was against the rules. So whether or not an advantage has been gained is neither here nor there. The rule mm. is that you do not grease a chain from the team car. And the reason for that is probably partly safety, partly for sporting integrity so that the rider can't hold on to the team car for too long. To be fair to Van Aert, he didn't hold on to the team car um, for too long. It wasn't it wasn't like he was trying to, um, you know, gain some kind of advantage, sticky bottle style. But the rule is the rule. And it's just kind of, I think it leaves people with a, a sense that, uh, you know, the rules are applied uh, one way one week and another way the next week. Yeah, it's been like that always. Eh? And to be honest, I didn't know about that rule change. It, they changed the uh, the chain and the oil rule like more than a year ago. And in my sense, in my experience of racing, I, I don't see how you would get an advantage. But apparently you can get uh, with the oiled chain, you can get a 12 watt advantage if the, the chain is well oiled so that that in in a sense might explain the reason they they introduced the rule but um huh, there is one rule in the UCI rule book and it's a big rule book eh? you guys know it's with, with lots of paragraphs and and little margins and there's one rule that says if the commissaire thinks that all the other rules are bullshit then the commissaire <laughs> is right. <laughs> it is in the book somehow, not in these words, but in the book, the, the commissaire always has the last word. So I mm. think um, it's not even true because there's even a commissaire in Aigle that can say that the commissaire in the race was not right. So in the end, who is right? <laughs> I, I think Lapartia is that commissaire somehow. <laughs> and then... And then, and then finally, you've got the commissaire of public opinion, and they're always right. <laughs> yeah. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters. Hopefully, everybody has signed up to the Science in Sport Classic 100 Challenge on Strava. Almost 100,000 participants taking part. 
completing 100 kilometers. There's still a few days to go until the qualifying period ends on March the 31st. So if you haven't got underway yet, you've still got a few days to ride 100 kilometers. My ride at Milan San Remo fell outside of the qualifying period, which is a bit of a setback for me. Looking at the leaderboard, some people have clocked up some big distances, over 2,000 kilometers. Keith Roy in Auburn, New York. Well done, Keith. Number 11 on the list is Zandro Marisa of uh, Alpecin de Koenig. He has the big advantage that the Volta a Catalunya fell within the qualifying period. So that probably accounts for quite a few of his kilometers. Well done, Zandro. Uh, the winner will, uh, there somebody will be picked from all of the people who've taken part in the Science and Sport Strava Challenge. And one lucky person will be at the finish line of Paris Bay. Uh, wait to hear from Science in Sport who that is. In the meantime, you can get everything you need from Science in Sport to fuel your ride at scienceinsport.com. Now, Renat, I said earlier in the episode that the Volta Catalunya was a mouth-watering antipasto for the Giro d'Italia. I remember a couple of years ago on a beautiful, absolutely gorgeous, another sun-kissed day in Assisi in uh, a Giro d'Italia in which we felt very privileged because people weren't travelling anymore and Assisi was completely empty. So we, we had the place to ourselves, but we had a long conversation about Remco Avenepoel, who was enduring some growing pains during that Giro d'Italia in 2021. And it wasn't clear at that point what the future held for Remco and certainly his Grand Tour future. Um, two years on, he is going to be heading into the Giro d'Italia. Certainly is one of two favourites. The Volta Catalunya was a bit of a dress rehearsal. Remco against Primoz Roglic. And Primoz Roglic came out on top just, just. Um, let's just dive into that now. And then we're going to go on to talk about uh, Sudal Quickstep generally. But I don't know how much you saw of Catalonia, but a lot. Um, in in short, do you think that it was a good, an indifferent, or a bad week for Remco looking ahead to the Giro? I think he had a terrific week. Um, okay, he didn't win the race, but um, he had two stages and then all the other side prizes. But uh, uh, he was able to to beat Roglic at certain times, and the difference was was only small in the end and i, I think um maybe he even got that last stage i mean <laughs> not sure how that sprint went out so um i only saw it once i, ha- I should have studied it again but even then uh, what i will take with me to that next year of italia is that um if the the, um, the difference between them stays this close then we'll mm. in for a nice giro but also a clear remco win because he has the time trials in his advantage. And I think and, even yeah. with, with Primoz being the Olympic, the reigning Olympic time trial champion, I think the big advantage will be the three time trials. And if, if the difference uh, in the mountain stays this close, then it's in Remco's back. That's how I look at it. Yeah, and one final time trial in which, well, I mentioned PTSD rather facetiously earlier in the podcast. Well, there will be some PTSD perhaps for Primoz Roglic because it's an uphill, it's a mountain top time trial which might bring back some memories of La Planche des Belfis at uh, the same stage of the 2020 2020 Tour de France wasn't it um, 
but I, I thought it was a fascinating week. It was, it was back and forth. It was ding dong. We mentioned last week that Remco had made a mistake by celebrating. It was at La Molina. Um, he celebrated a little bit early. Gave up a couple of seconds, which may have been decisive because it meant that Primoz Roglic kept the leader's jersey. And that had a big impact on the weekend because we saw this couple of occasions when Roglic effectively wouldn't ride with Remco. And this led to Remco gesticulating wildly and, and social media catching fire people talking about Remco's petulance again probably unfairly but I don't know did we see a little bit of what is the still the question mark over Remco as far as the Giro is concerned and just you know a bit of the inexperience a bit of the the sort of emotiveness Um, I've been watching the new Amazon documentary The Wolf Pack and it's a six-part documentary it tells the story of Quick Steps 2022 season. We see a lot of Remco in that. We see a lot of his Vuelta a España victory. And he's undeniably impressive. He's a real leader. He's a guy who you get the sense at certain times he is dictating things in the team bus more than the director sportifs, um, I would say. But, you know, there are, there are good and bad aspects to that, aren't there? I think it really shines a light on the fact that the team is not that experienced in going for grand tours there isn't this big sort of edifice behind him that has 10 years of experience of trying to win grand tours at the Vuelta last year as I say it was really him that was deciding the tactics him that was giving pep talks to his teammates and so on and so forth and I just think that you know you guys Lionel and Renat you've both done the Giro many times the Giro is a more complicated race than the Vuelta in my opinion the roads are more difficult. There are more potentially more changes in weather. The crowds are bigger. You are riding through towns and villages in a way that you don't in with the same sort of regularity at the at the Vuelta. There's maybe a little bit more hype at the Giro um, than there was at the Vuelta last year. I don't know. That's my big question mark. I mean, Roglic, you know, he's shown his vulnerabilities on many occasions in Grand Tours as well. So he's by no means bulletproof. However, I just wonder whether there might be a bit too much going on for Remco, particularly if things start to go south for him at the Giro. No, it doesn't feel like that. I'm, I'm pretty much under the impression that he has things under control. Um, I've had the luck of covering every race of Remco this year, except for Catalonia. Um, and I see a very matured guy, and it's true that uh, that in the Wolfpack he uh, counter speaks. Not sure if it's the right expression. His DS is in in the cars, um, but I think that's a good thing. But probably he will pay uh, some learning money. We say in Flemish, "leerheld." That's probably not an English expression, but he he will have to learn um, listening to his uh, DSs as well in the cars because. It's true what you say, the Giro is a more complex and uh, grand tour than, than the Vuelta is in a way. And um, the weather is is going to play a role there for sure. But I'm under the impression that, that the maturity Remco has gotten extra over the last couple of months, half year, let's say... Yeah, last year eh? it, it all started with with uh, with Liège last year. Eh? I mean, since then he's been on a roller coaster with with no ending, and everything he touches turns into gold and doesn't seem to stop. And I think the 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 thing we saw from Remco last week was he was really trying with everything that was inside his body and his mm. mind. I want to win this race, which is 
uh, if you look at, at it as a as a uh, preparation race, he wanted to win it. It wasn't. Uh, just a preparation race. It was a goal in the end. He wanted to win it and he could have won it with a couple of little changes or twists in the scenario. But I think it was interesting that the way he tried uh, as maybe an inexperienced uh, yeah, young rider in some way because Roglic was really un undeterred, un unmoved by everything he tried. I mean, I, I remember there was one phase where there were both of them got away in that one stage and, and Remco was like begging, please, please take the lead and, and collaborate with me, which eventually he did in the closing stage. So um, I think Roglic was more listening, is more listening to the team card than, than Remco is right, right now. But I'm quite sure that if the time comes that the team car will say to Remco, Shut up! <laughs> it it has to happen at one time because you you just can't do a whole career without not listening to the team car. It's very important that that even as a developing Grand Tour rider that you from times to times that you did understand that okay I can't have the whole helicopter view on the race and the whole mm -hmm. the whole outcome and the whole outplay. You say a lot of things can happen in a Grand Tour. Sometimes the rider as good as he might be, as intelligent as he might be. And I, I suspect, I'm quite sure Remco is very intelligent. He certainly and, comes uh, across as that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, So, but there will come a point that, that there will be uh, uh, a very important dialogue between him and his team leaders. Maybe it won't happen during a race. Maybe it will happen after a, a mistake in, in some stage, but that day will come for sure. And it'll be part of, of his learning process to become the... Uh, the ultimate champion he wants to be. Mm. Yeah. I do think he's given Roglic something to work with though this week. Mm. You know, the, the, the kind of the, we know Remco's superpower is that confidence, that flamboyance, you know, he will attack from a long way out. We saw it on, uh, uh, well, a couple of times, didn't we? How he will risk a lot. I mean, you know, this is not the Giro d'Italia. It's only Catalonia. I mean, a big race, an important race, but, but it is a testing ground. It's a place to learn. Um, but the kind of the arm waving and the, the slight frustration, you know, Roglic can be quite ice cool about things. And mm. uh, I think that's handed Roglic something that he can work with. You know, he can he could get Remco frustrated quite easily in the Giro. And over three weeks, that that kind of pent up energy frustration might have to go somewhere. It might work to Remco's uh, favour. But I think the pair of them are so well matched, you know, you mentioned the difference in the time trial. Yes, possibly. But when they're racing on the road, one goes, the other responds. The other goes, the other responds. Then when it comes down to the sprint, there's really not much between them at all. It's going to be fascinating to see whether we do have a, a you know successive days where it's just the two of them and the, the margins might be very fine. And the margins might come down to the mind games rather than, mm. than just necessarily who's physically the strongest. And a, and a mistake in a Grand Tour can be exploited uh, much more, uh, you know, with much more kind of ruthlessness and greater consequences than it can in a week-long stage race. Yeah, and, and, uh, I, I, sorry, Renan, I, I think that when I look back on the Vuelta last year, one of the most impressive things about Roglic's race was that he clearly was not on form in the first half of the race. He did win a stage uh, at La Guardia, I think on stage four. But I was impressed by his ability to not completely 
um, play himself out of the race and to only lose a minute when he was being dropped by Remco. Even in the time trial in Alicante, he lost less than a minute. And when we got to the third week, he'd started to turn things around. Um, I'm not sure I've seen that from Remco yet. I've seen Remco surf this wave of euphoria when things are going well. You know, you... You see him in that Wolfpack documentary coming back to the bus after he's won San Sebastian last year for the second time. And he's bouncing off the walls inside the bus. He's so excited. Um, he's ex so excited by his own form, how well everything's going. He can't wait to tell everyone about where he attacked and, you know, how much time he put into Simon Yates and, and so on and so forth. Um, I And I contrast, I know it was a long time ago and the circumstances were very different, but the Giro in 2021, his, it wasn't just his legs that weren't as good as he would like. His whole demeanour switched and, and um, you know, in his interactions with the media and so forth, it was, it was very transparent. He was very transparent that he wasn't particularly enjoying himself. And I think that maybe if things don't go his way, he possibly that's something he, he will need to work on, that he needs to find a kind of happy medium and just not play himself out of the reckoning. Yeah, of course, I'm, I'm watching the whole Remco episode through my Belgian glasses and I can't change my nationality or my background. I've tried to be objective, but um, <clears throat> I'm thinking that the Remco of that first Giro participation is not existing anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I think he developed so um, yeah, so much that, that the mistakes that have been made in the team back then and his own mistakes as well because he he uh, actually acknowledged them in in uh, in interviews later on so the hype in belgium was too much at the time for sure the hype would created in the team was also too much they acknowledged that physically he wasn't ready for that giro after his lombardy crash um, that giro came too early with uh, no competition at all in the legs uh, they they tried to speed up the recovery process which they acknowledged they they did in the wrong way and stuff like that so i'm quite sure that those mistakes won't happen again but what we saw this week was the eagerness of remco in certain race situations and i do acknowledge there that he has some learning to do there it's not to me uh, to say that but but it looked like he could have handled the situation differently but somehow still and that might be contradictory with what i just said but to me he was the mental the the, the moral winner of that catalonia tour because he he showed again that he could uh, harm a three times vuelta winner with more experience and more age behind him so uh, he was for me uh, after that week the, the 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 moral winner, and I think he will take that into his backpack and go to that Giro d'Italia with an opening time trial with an extremely amount of confidence. And then it's a matter of um, keeping his crown to the feet by his entourage, which is going to happen and is happening all mm -hmm. the time. Had the luck of talking with him. Uh, recently quite extensively and he says that a lot of people in his entourage say no to him and they have to because that wouldn't mm. be good the opposite mm. Belgian commissaire's rules here even when the Belgian finished second they've won amazing <laughs> <laughs> just on uh, just on Catalonia it's a lovely race isn't it I do think that final stage we've said it before it's really gripping to watch it feels to me this is a bit of 
bit anecdotal, but it does feel to me like the crowds are getting bigger and bigger each mm. year on that final circuit in Barcelona. And maybe Remco, as a former footballer, he really wanted the, the leader's jersey, which is uh, inspired by uh, Unio Esportiva Sants football club's jersey, white with the, with the green bars. One of the best leader's jerseys in the world, in my opinion, I think. Uh, he's he's collecting jerseys, eh? He's really collecting football jerseys. He tries to buy or get jerseys every time he goes somewhere. He tries to get a, a football jersey. And uh, San Juan, of course, is his beloved uh, territory to, to, to gain those jerseys. Yeah. Yeah, I heard the Italian commentators complaining about the Catalonia jersey, obviously saying that it wasn't very visible, obviously not knowing the history of um, its origin. Um, chaps, should we broaden the discussion just quickly and briefly talk about uh, Sudo quick step generally? We talked about them a bit last week, but their barren run certainly in the Cobble Classics continues. Um, there's a bit of, I sense, well, there's quite a bit of talk. Uh, there's quite a bit of panic. Um, vicarious panic for on behalf of Sudal Quickstep. People are a lot of sort of tittering about Patrick Lefebvre, the comment he made about his lunch on Friday being the most enjoyable thing about the day when his team were taking a bit of a whipping at E3 Harbecker. Now, just looking back at previous seasons, this is not the first time that they've struggled in the first part of the Cobble Classics. Um, Going back, so 2010 was a bit of a washout. They won absolutely nothing really in the Cobble Classics last year. The Boone got second at San Remo, you three Flanders. 2018, they won, no, sorry, 2011, they won very, very little all season, um, although they did win Ghent Vavelgum. 2013, the Panna was the only thing of note they won in this period of the year. 2015, they won Kurna with Cavendish and Amstel with Kriato, Kriakowski but not much else. So it's not the first time. And even last year, going back um, 12 months, it was Remco Avonapool, let's not forget, who really saved their spring by winning liege bastogne liege They'd not had a very good classics season. But the, these, these things are all linked, aren't they? Because we have seen uh, an increasing a prioritisation of stage races since Remco has emerged. Um, in 2021, they won the Tour of Flanders with Kaspar Asgrain. And a few weeks later, they renewed the contracts of Avonapool, Asgreen, and Julien Alaphilippe. And it struck me, it struck me over the weekend that, you know, if you're looking back to where this, if you can call it a malaise, if, if the roots of it may have been there because, okay, Alaphilippe's had an awful lot of bad luck over the last couple of years. But... They really sort of moved their chips across the poker table towards stage races as far as the recruitment and resources and budget was concerned, I would suggest. I don't know if you'd agree with that. But that evolution is, is ongoing, of course. Uh, there's um, 21 riders of, of the Wolfpack, uh, I believe, 21 or end of contract this year. So... Um, there's be there's going to be a lot of negotiation and um one thing of course they want to do is is to um fortify the the group of riders around Evenepoel in order to attack that debut in next year's Tour de France and so Evenepoel has said about that that uh, it, of course it's not uh, the purpose to to create a, a 30 rider grand tour um, nucleus within the team because the team with so much experience in one day classics has to to stay focused on those as well and uh, I remember him uh, Evenepoel saying about that that even teams like Ineos and and um, 
especially Jumbo Visma, they also have 15 rider nucleus within the team focused on the classics, apart from the Grand Tour riders. So I think that's the way um, Sudal Quickstep is also going to. They will have a team clearly split into two halves. You have the Grand Tour riders, you have the one day and the classics riders. Um, so it's clear that the team is going through a transition, but I think that that the recent um, not performing in the classics um, has a lot of reasons. Uh, for instance, Friday, Alain Philippe in the early stage of the race, and which is unusual. I was on a motorbike, Alain Philippe drives by and he starts pointing at his stomach, with, mm. looking at me. And it was like, what is he referring to? And then after the race, I found out, okay, he had stomach problems already before the race. He was already saying like, my stomach is not okay. I will not what perform today. So that was, in my opinion, striking. Of course, mm. Lefebvre after the race said, if Julien is sick, he shouldn't have started. Typical Lefebvre communication. Mm. So clearly things are not going their way. But as Lefebvre always said, um, we make a report after Liège. Last year, they made mm. that report and it was saved by the bell through uh, Remco's win. So the same thing might happen this year. It's on, on his program, Liège, and I wouldn't rule them out for Roubaix. I think Tour of Flanders will be difficult because you suspect a Julian Alaphilippe to be at the level of Pogacar, Van Aert and Van der Poel, but clearly he's not. Can he, within a week, change the whole perception? Yeah, you never know. Uh, on the other hand, I, I remember... Uh, Laporte saying just six or seven hours at the start of Kent Wevelgem, I'm not 100% yet. I don't feel like I felt uh, last season and, and we saw what happened seven years, seven hours later. So it's not an exact science. And I think uh, cycling by, uh, by excellence is a sport where shape of the day, um, scenario of the day might turn up things completely. Of course, this is a Jumbo-Visma era. We're living in the cobblestones races. But if, if, for instance, for some reason, bad luck is their side and things happen in, in the Tour of Flanders and Roubaix, the whole world might change in just like 10 days. That's how it goes mm. in cycling. I think it's the, the whole impression is exacerbated by the fact that on Friday, Askreen was kind of there and then was nowhere. Uh, you know, 60-odd kilometres from the finish, he had a little move and you expected him to be, well, make the split. But when the split happened, he was nowhere to be seen. I know, obviously, he had his um, trouble at the end of Paris-Nice and, you know, perhaps he'll another week on, he'll be uh, a, a bit better for the Tour of Flanders. But then, again, Wevergem, on Sunday, you know, Tim Malia and Fabio Jakobsen, and they managed to get neither of them into a, a position um, to contest for the win. Yes, I know it was the Jumbo Visma um, super show, but the sight of Jakobsen trying to ride across the gap to group two, getting within touching distance, and then the wind direction presumably changed as they came onto the, the big road and he got blown backwards, didn't make it, kind of looked fairly forlorn. And uh, when Lefebvre makes his comment like some Roman emperor from lunch in Wadagam on Friday, kind of almost, you know, uh, ignoring the fact that actually the team are having a good week in Copier Bartoli with Mario Schmidt. And ignoring the fact that... Remco is racing his heart out in Catalonia. Yes, I know the team has a classics heartbeat, but it's kind of like, you know, Lefebvre, you know, mopping uh, mopping his mouth with his napkin and then, you know, pointing his thumb 
thumb downwards. <laughs> not great for morale, I would imagine, for the rest of the team. Yeah, but but, it's it's um, the way he communicates. And it's, yeah. I, I think it's also the way Belgian and a lot of media are covering these kind of races. Uh, it's, yeah. it's with a, a, a lot of focus on it. And if you look at these races then in, in the whole of the season, then it's just a small part of the season. And then it might be not as big as it was, but at the moment it looks like a funeral for the Wolfpack during the classics. But um, I wouldn't say they're unsuccessful if you look like mm. like Lionel mentions at, at um, Copi Bartali and Catalonia and all the other successes. They're still a world-class team. Uh, but the focus within that team on those classics is so huge. And of course, uh, my colleagues and myself, we are ready after each race. If Lefebvre shop shows around the corner, we will ask his opinion. And we're sure to get copy as well because it's Lefebvre. Mm. That's the way he communicates. He's always uh, giving headlines. So it's also a part of the game and it might somehow make or create a little misperception of the real situation in the races because it's not 100% uh, looking at the plain facts, what is happening, what is uh, behind, little sickness, um, tactical. I'm, Jakobsen wasn't that far off. I mean, it might have, it could have changed the whole race in Gentwevelen. We'll never know. But if we get to the end of April and all they've got to show for it is Tim Malia and a win at Nokera Cursa, they're not going to put a big picture of that up in Sudal uh, or Quickstep headquarters, are they? No, no, no. They're they're looking for yeah. They're looking for Yves Lampard winning uh, Paris Roubaix. I mean, I think Belgium would go nuts if something like that would happen. In, yeah, his uh, his yeah his bad luck of, of it, it has to stop somewhere. Shoot, uh, shoot at l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by GCN Plus, and all of our UK listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Go to gcn.eu slash cycling15 to subscribe. And, of course, this Sunday it is the big one, or the big two, the Tour of Flanders for both men and women, and the races are live and uninterrupted with ad-free coverage on GCN+, Plus, so you won't miss a minute. You can also watch On Demand, catch up if you miss anything or you want to go back and watch some of the key incidents a second time. The GCN app also has race previews, route maps and profiles and the start list, so you've got everything at your fingertips as you follow the race on Sunday. As I say, this is relatively new for viewers outside of Belgium, this kind of kilometre zero to the finish coverage of the big classics, but GCN Plus does it brilliantly. And of course, they have the commentary team and the pundits to try and shed a bit of light on what's actually going on beyond what you can see on the screen. So sign up at gcn.eu slash cycling15. And I'm sure, well, Renard, will you be watching on a screen or will you be on the motorbike again? I'll be on the motorbike again. And as we speak, uh, it's uh, it started hailing here in Bruges. So that's really a prospect. Uh, <laughs> and I'm uh, somehow praying for a dry edition. I, I know that's probably not the wish for a lot of uh, TV spectators because it might create extra uh, suspense. But uh, yeah, somehow I'm, I'm quite selfish right now. Yeah. Well, chaps, this has been a, this has been a long uh, episode of the Cycling Podcast already. If we go on much longer, I think Renard's moto pilot, moto driver, will be revving up and riding off into the hailstones, into the sleet without him. Um, so we better well, well, let's make it let's keep it brief. Um, talking about the Tour of Flanders on Sunday. 
I would like you to come with one theme that you think will be a broader point of discussion for for a lot of people after Sunday's race, something that you're looking out for um, from Sunday's race. I will start, and the prompt for this, Renard, I must say, was yesterday's, well, this particular rider's performance yesterday in Ghent-Wevelgum. Um, Sepp van Marken finished third, and, well, this had me... Reaching for my BlackBerry, wanting to, I don't know, play a game of Angry Birds, do the Harlem Shake. It felt very 2011, 12. Um, Set Van Marker, a rider who around about that time, or maybe a bit after that, um, was a rider I thought might dominate the classics. I thought he would turn up one year in the classics and just trample over everyone and turn them into a sort of coarse pesto because he, he looked capable of doing that at times. He's now 34 years old. He's running for Israel Premier Tech. What happened to Set Van Marker? Why didn't that happen, um, Renard? I think he had a lot of bad luck combined with um, badly timed sicknesses in the past. Um, but um, the fact that he ended up third yesterday wasn't, of course, surprising if you look at his pedigree and his past as a, as a cobblestone rider. Uh, Gent Wevelgem being the race also where it all started for him back in 2010 with his first second place then. He, he's managed to get three times on the podium since, twice second, yesterday third. So it, it, in some way, his whole career is being summarized by Gent Wevelgem. But it's always, uh, yeah, a net neat, we say in Flemish. Um, he's just beside it. Uh, so we're waiting for the big one to to, to give that career the extra edge he, he really deserves. And um, he's, um, if you look at his physics, one of the... Uh, ultimate cobbles riders in the peloton. He's made for cycling on, on cobblestones. Uh, so I wouldn't rule him out for for the, the Paris-Roubaix. The Tour of Flanders will probably be too big for his cup of tea. But a race like Roubaix, he might be in for a real shot this year, especially if the conditions stay like this, because afterwards uh, I spoke with him after the, uh, his Kent Wavel game. And he said, yeah, I think um, the weather somehow helped me in achieving this third place and he might be right we've seen it in the past uh, all the riders tend to perform better in um, bad weather conditions and uh, if everything sticks together or stays together for Sepp van Marke he might be the one to count with in the upcoming Hell of the North so uh, could have been Renard could have been we were talking about Sudar Quickstep quick step. I think you know could Patrick Lefebvre have reached into the bargain basement in the last couple of years when I'm sure Seth Van Mark's stock and asking price uh, well certainly the last time he signed a contract would have been a lot lower than it was a few years ago could this have been an upcycling opportunity in the same way that um, Patrick Lefebvre sort of upcycled, reinvented Philippe Gilbert to to great effect a few seasons ago. Yeah, of course he could have been, but um, Patrick Lefebvre is not from yesterday, and he'll probably look at return on investment, and then negotiations will probably have taken place, and then I think in the end Lefebvre will have judged Van Marke even too expensive. So it's mostly a matter of of money. Uh, I'm not even sure if there were negotiations, but he could have been a solution and uh, a revival as well. But I think if you look at the current riders they have, I'm not sure Lefebvre was thinking, OK, I need Van Marke. Because at the time he was, for instance, signing mm -hmm. Van Petegem, it, it turned out to really be a saver for the team. And I wouldn't Van say Petegem. that the team... Oh, we're going to... 
Oh yeah, yeah long, that's even, long time that's even ago. Further back, yeah. We're going back yeah. to the last century now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Almost>. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Gilbert, it wasn't it wasn't even a lifesaver. Eh? I mean, uh, the team was already at level then. Yeah. Uh, but uh, back in the days, um, signing a rider like Van Petekam used to be uh, a good thing. And I've it was completely always, forgotten also, Peter Van Petekam. Yeah, for, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. very well though. That didn't really work, did it? From it did, it did, did it? it did, it did, it did work. And in the end, um, Van Petekam uh, led Bolen to the world title, okay. of course, in different different jerseys, but. Uh, that wasn't an unimportant signing, uh, yeah. Lionel, what about you? I think it'll be interesting to see what sort of uh, impact Ineos Grenadiers can have on the race. Talking about bad luck and crashes and other mishaps, Ineos Grenadiers have had a, a pretty tricky spring, haven't they? Ben Turner crashed at Omloop Het Newsblad and fractured his elbow. He has been back in action, but uh, is not on the provisional list for the team. They do have Tom Pidcock, who crashed on the final stage of Tirreno Adriatico, crashed into uh, Wout van Aert, or Wout van Aert crashed into him. Whichever, they both went down. Pidcock then missed Milan San Remo, but is due to return to action at Duarsdor Vlaanderen just before the Tour of Flanders. Uh, I mean, you know, can he latch on to the, the, the express train that's going to go at some point? Filippo uh, Gano was never going to ride the Tour of Flanders because his sights are set on Paris-Roubaix. He had a very good E3 Saxo Classic, finished 10th, but then crashed in Gent-Wevergem on Sunday. He is apparently OK after that crash, as is Mikhail Kwiatkowski, who we saw go down quite heavily uh, on the TV cameras uh, apparently okay. Um, Magnus Sheffield, you know, built for these races, and it'd be interesting to see whether his development clicks on another notch. And I think it was interesting to see uh, Jonathan Navarez sort of taking a flyer through that roundabout uh, in Gent Wevergem, you know, you know, perhaps trying to sneak a, a, a decent result for them. Um, yeah, will they be able to cobble something together on Sunday? Oh, Do you get that? Oh, cobble wow. something together. God, it has been a long episode. Renard, what about you? <laughs> I'm looking forward to um, two riders in particular. I'm very interested in what Nielsen Paulus is going to do, mm. number seven of the recent Milan San Remo. I think um, given his, his early season shape, he's a really interest, interesting rider to be followed by. And uh, yeah, I think the team of Walters, uh, EF Education, Easy Post is all, always the team that, that is somehow capable to surprise at moments that not a lot of people are expecting them. And Nielsen Paulus is the guy to go to there at the moment, I think, more than Alberto Betiol, it seems like. Betiol, who was abandoning... Um, Gent Wevelgem yesterday at, at uh, yeah, an unexpected point, uh, if you ask me. Maybe he's only thinking about one race. Could be an option as well. You never know with uh, Betio. You, no, you never um, know with Betio. Yeah, and then <laughs> there's um, a second rider I'm, I'm really interested in. It's the debut of Binyam Girmay. He had bad luck in, in Gent Wevelgem. There was the crash and then he was running behind the facts in the race. But the team has said repeatedly that, that Binyam is on his last season's level. Except we haven't seen it up until he now. He has not in the said race. that. He has not said that. He said he's not going quite as well. That's his feeling. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Okay. Then yeah, we'll have to give uh, credit to him. But anyway, I'm interested in him performing in the Tour of Flanders because last year after his um, legendary win in, in Gent-Wevelgem, he, he took off to... Uh, 
to uh, Eritrea and so he, he never even tried that Tour of Flanders. So anyway, it'll be an interesting path to see for him um, if, what he does in, in a first Flanders experience. To be fair, he hadn't seen his family for a long period of time, had he? Been in been in Europe since uh, the beginning of the year and, and was keen to get back to, to see his family. So, yeah. The team tried to persuade him to ride Flanders, but... Uh, yeah, he just decided no, that's not true. to. Fair enough, I think. In the same that's true what you say, uh, Lionel, because last year he wasn't even foreseen for Gantwevelgam. It's because of the fifth place in E3. He, in the end, did Gantwevelgam and won the race. Thank goodness. Well, chaps, at this point, Renard, I think we're going to say goodbye to you, not least because we have kept you almost to the start, right up until the start of the Tour of Flanders. Um, for God's sake, on Sunday, stay warm, will you? Well, I'll be looking at the weather forecast nervously over the next few days, worried about you and and your, you know, whether you've whether you've layered up enough, um, particularly if it's if it's as wet as you have promised us that it will be, because as we know, it always rains in Belgium, as you keep telling us. And the latest prediction says the start in Bruges will be dry, but then we'll have to wait and see what happens for the rest of the day. And also in, in six, in a couple of days, the predictions might change. But as I, as we speak now, I see they're going to go, the start is going to take place, chaps. No, 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 no. no. Well, <laughs> no, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to that, of course, because it's the first time in, in six, seven years that back in my hometown, Bruges, you know, there's this new system with uh, having... Uh, a change this year is Bruges, next year is Antwerp, and that will go on for like six years. So uh, it's the one monument I get to sleep in my own bed, and that will happen now for uh, three three years, the coming five years. So I'm really looking forward to a good nights of rest and uh, an incredible race, which will hopefully capture imagination and a lot of people's cycling fantasies. And no doubt, Renard, we'll have you back on the podcast soon. And I look forward to seeing you at the Giro. You'll be at the Giro, won't you, with the other 10,000 Belgian journalists that will be sent to cover, (laughs) to observe Remco's every move. Presente, Daniele. I will be there. Perfecto. Hello, my name is Richard Moore with Daniel Freib. Hello, Rich. Hello, Bernie. Ciao, Lionel. 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 Hang on a sec. Sorry. Lionel. I'm busy, Rich. I'm busy. Come on. Oh, my God. He's had his nose in that album all day. (laughs) I've got my Panini sticker album from the Giro, and I have not faked this because it's impossible to know what stickers are in the envelopes. First packet, first rider, Lucas Perstelberger. No. Absolutely. I actually saw him sneak a little peek and and look like the cat that got the cream. And he... there is stage winner. We were played in there by his direct sportif at Bora Hansgrohe. He said Lucas, you weren't a lucky man, like Lucas Pusselberger, the winner, the surprise winner. Well, I say surprise. I mean, you might remember, chaps, I tipped him in the car as we were driving over to finish in Albio today. I don't remember guy, that. guy we were discussing earlier. Nobody else talking about Pusselberger. We talked about that, that last kilometre. We said this uh, is perfect for Pusselberger. Uh, this has got Pusselberger written all over it. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you two might have been nodding off at the time in Italy, but I definitely tipped him as a, as a candidate for today's stage. I just thought it definitely, definitely was going to fault him. But it was a surprise win for everybody else. It who, was. Who's not been paying attention to cycling. I think, Napalm, you were but, at the CCC... The, no, the Polish amazing. team's bus weren't you and, more um, credit for this. No, they were quite surprised, weren't they? Weren't they sort of almost in hysterics? The well, they they found it very amusing. That was uh, Marcin Bialablocki's teammates, um, and they all got back to the finish there and asking each other who won. And when somebody said it was Postelberger, they were 
basically, yeah, they were in hysterics. Not quite sure why. Possible so surprise. A, a carpenter, we learned in the in the press conference there. But um, Lionel, it wasn't a hugely eventful stage today. Day, day one of the Giro d'Italia. I don't know if I've mentioned that, but we're at the Giro d'Italia and we're on stage. Well, Lionel, we sent Renard off there with an arrivederci al Giro d'Italia. And that was, of course, us, as in the three of us who started this podcast 10 years ago without a plan or a clue. You, Richard Moore, and me at the 2017 Giro d'Italia in Sardinia, Sardinia, still sort of making it up as we went along, somehow dragging people around bike races, the bike races of Europe with us. Uh, we're recording this final part on Wednesday, um, Monday, having been, I guess, in our mind, your mind and my mind, uh, a significant day very somber day because the Monday after Gent-Wevelgem was the day when last year we were preparing to record a podcast after that race, which Richard had attended, Biniam Gamay had won, and um, yeah, we received the message that, well, the unimaginable had happened. And, um, and Tuesday, so yesterday, was the actual anniversary of Richard's passing, so um, yeah, thus marking... A year without him, um, a year which has been challenging in ways that we knew it would be. I think we knew what we would miss. Um, Richard's qualities and his legacy have been brought into sharp focus and sharper focus with every passing day and week and month since then, haven't they? Yeah, they certainly have, Daniel. I mean, I don't know how you feel, but to me it feels as if it's been the longest year of my life and yet it, a year ago feels like just yesterday those emotions uh, came rushing back to me uh, just uh, the similarity in the weather on Monday and and the sense of um, anticipation before recording the episode and, and just the shock of of hearing that news and then well, we had a couple of days where we had to hold this awful news pretty much to ourselves, didn't we, whilst Richard's family got everything in order before, well, you you wrote the um, the announcement that we posted on um, social media to, to, to tell the uh, the listeners, the wider world, the, the terrible news. And just that, that couple of days of just almost suspended animation, uh, you know, an, an awful experience that... Um, I wouldn't wish on anybody and uh, unfortunately the unavoidable reliving it really the last few days and it's just that sense of loss of missing Richard is felt as keenly when I'm talking to you Daniel you know no disrespect but the, we're like a bar stool that has lost one of its legs and we've gone a bit wobbly and yeah I mean I was um, I mean, I, the, the image that I have in my head is a bit of a, we're a sort of plane that's lost its fuselage. I mean, you and I, the two wings being uh, <laughs> in some ways quite, quite similar in the sense, you know, in, in our propensity to sort of to introversion, self-indulgence, self-doubt and Richard being the kind of engine that was pro propelling us forward a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, he had a sense of confidence, but without certainty, you know, self-assured but he was also self-aware, and I think, yeah, when when you when you when we've lost um, some of those things, you know, the the glue that kind of bound us together, the um, the one that had the, the the instinct to know when enough was enough, on you know a whimsical, um, um, you know, 
deviation in the podcast, but also um, just a reminder, a constant reminder. And I, you know, I haven't lost this, but just not having that sounding board, not being able to call Richard. And I mean, we spoke on a daily basis, um, you know, throughout the last six, seven years of the, of the um, cycling podcast time we've, we've worked together on it. Um, Just knowing that if I had a doubt, I could share that doubt with Richard in, in a way that would, um, you know, just help those doubts kind of ebb away. That's no disrespect to you, Daniel, but I think, you know, we're quite similar characters in, in, in a way. And, um, yeah, I just try to always remember, you know, Richard's sense of curiosity, his sense of trying to find out and his sense of honesty in the sense that if he didn't know an answer to something, he would say, oh, we don't know. We don't know at the moment. We'll try to find out. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a difficult few days and I, Although again, Wevergen was very different on Sunday in the sense that the weather was completely different to this time last year. Last year was a kind of a beautiful, sunny, bright spring. Um, it did bring it all back, and just the memory of the the Sunday watching Biniam Gamai win the race, and just picking up from Richard's messages of just how enthusiastic he was about it, and how much he was looking forward to talking about it on the podcast, and just yeah, the, those memories and moments that you carry with yourself and, and can't really banish. Um, we were swapping messages on WhatsApp and he said, oh, I'll give you a call on the way home in the car. And, and I said, oh, look, I'm going to be busy with, you know, children's bedtime and, and dinner and stuff. And um, I, I, we'll speak tomorrow before we record the podcast. And of course, we never did. And, uh, you know, if you could go back and just edit a message and, and, and just have a last conversation, uh, I would I would do that. Yeah, Lionel, I can remember that morning. I remember having spoken to Biniam Gimai's agent, Alex Carrera, before the what, what I thought was going to be that day's podcast. And uh, as you know, you just said, Richard would have been excited to record that morning. I was excited to, you know, tell him what I'd learned. I'd learned, uh, I'd had quite a long conversation with Alex, and he'd given me a lot of the background details of Gimai signing for Intermarche and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, I think the clip there from the Giro, it sort of encapsulates the the spirit of fun and adventure and improvisation, particularly, that we, that w- was, again, a, a force that propelled the podcast for a long time. I mean, we, we were fortunate enough, and we've said this on numerous occasions, that we were we were operating in a space that wasn't particularly crowded and we were doing something that, well, we, as I said, we had no real idea where it was going initially. And that allowed us to improvise, but it was also one of um, Richard's great strengths as well. Sometimes, you know, it was sometimes infuriating for you and, for you and me. Um, one of the reasons why we called him the Buffalo was, as I think everyone knows now, that he would just charge forward while we were sort of gazing at our navels um and not a lot in the last year has felt improvised um you know i talked last year about this the federal republic of richard moore the way he brought everyone together and it's felt as though the sort of constitution of this podcast has had to be rewritten and rewritten in in a very sort of deliberate and intentional and um and 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 very challenging way um, and we've done it as as best as we've been able to do but obviously as I said a few minutes ago we knew at the time that we would never be able to replace Richard and you know with every with every month that goes by 
new, as I said before, new uh, or sort of more things that Richard had and we do not necessarily possess and we're having to sort of, well, that's where we are improvising, we're having to contrive them. They are becoming clear or clearer and coming even into even sharper focus. Yeah, on the other hand, though, I mean, Richard would be furious if we'd just kind of given up. And um, definitely my thanks uh, to you, Daniel, for for steering the ship very much alone for, you know, a number of months, uh, certainly, you know, front of house anyway. Um, yeah, we, we certainly wouldn't be here where we are now um, had you not done that. And you definitely carried the spirit of the buffalo through those few months. And I'm very grateful to you for being able to do that while I uh, took some time that I needed because... I think I was very fortunate in a sense, immediately after Richard died, I had a purpose. I had the trip to Scotland with Simon. It Everything, you know, felt kind of, it felt like the perfect way to go and, um, you know, a, a escape um, and, and just sort of be with those uh, immediate feelings of, of shock and grief when it was at its rawest. And that trip definitely helped me. But um, I think it also kind of delayed the inevitable um, you know, sense of trying to somehow um, come to terms with losing Richard because, you know, I know the listeners know this, um, but he was our friend as well. He wasn't just a work colleague. That's uh, the podcast really evolved out of that friendship. And he brought the two of us together because we hadn't really worked together, Daniel. We were kind of, you know, on nodding terms really across the press room prior to the cycling podcast. And, and he, he was the one who saw that it might work kind of I don't know sort of odd couple plus him um as a as a triumvirate um but uh I would also like to thank all of the listeners because the number of messages that we've had from people um expressing their condolences and support um first of all at this time last year but throughout the year really the encouragement and the um the messages that they've sent well, thank you very much to everyone who's uh, said something or even just thought it. Um, it has been a comfort to know that you, you're with us. Um, and I think... Uh, and thanks for their patience as well. <laughs> thanks for their patience. Particularly, you know, you, you, you mentioned, you know, well, there have been long periods and in a sense we're still in a period of transition things are becoming clearer to us about the future direction of the podcast but people have been very patient and i think on the whole um they've appreciated that we are trying to reconfigure uh, and slowly sort of finding our feet again very slowly um in the way you and i generally do things but uh, that patience has been greatly appreciated as well and hopefully will be rewarded indeed well i think we should end the episode with something that we've heard before it was in one of the episodes of the tour de Cos when we reached air which of course is robert burns country the the great scottish poet uh, a listener on our facebook page uh, posted a robert burns poem epitaph on my own friend uh, our listener patty o'sullivan just thought the words perfectly summed up Richard and I agree and so we asked Sir Chris Hoy to read that poem and we closed one of the episodes of the Tour de Cos with it and so here I think appropriate to close this episode with Epitaph on My Own Friend by Robert Burns read by Sir Chris Hoy An honest man here lies at rest as e'er God with his image blessed The friend of man 
the friend of truth, the friend of age and guide of youth. Few hearts like his with virtue warmed, few heads with knowledge so informed. If there's another world, he lives in bliss. If there is none, he made the best of this. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs>